Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio Podcasts. This podcast is focused on leveraging mobile technologies and the development of novel digital endpoints. It is from the 2022 Mobile Tech and Clinical Trials Conference, a sister event to the DFARM Conference. For more information about these conferences, our editorial podcasts and webinars, please visit dfarmconference.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. All right, so Michelle, good to see you here. Um, we, had, we had a pre or a couple of pre uh, meetings and we decided we had a lot more questions that we can possibly cover in the 19 minutes and 39 seconds or so. But can you tell us a little bit about how you think about digital science and digital health and the science of digital? Thank you, Tony, and thank you for staying with this track. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I know there's a lot of great content, and I, I, should, I, I wanted to just take a minute to actually thank the, um, the organizer for inviting me back. So three years ago, uh, this was the exact venue that I met my current employer. Ah, <laughs> all so right. Enjoy your networking. Um, so <laughs> right now, um, I'm the head of digital science at AVI, and it's really incredible uh, privilege and opportunity to lead the team there. Um, our team um, basically is com composed of a digital health strategist and also signal processing scientists. Mm -hmm. And we specifically position ourselves to be in the scientific area. So answering your question. So, I mean, some people look at the digital health as a way to engage patient, and some may look at it as a way to actually commercialize your product. Um, our specific strategic position is really focused on the science, using digital health technology as a drug development tools. And so if you're thinking about uh, developing digital biomarkers that can potentially um, identify signals that can actually predict a, a disease outcome, disease progression, then you know, there's biomarker development pathway that you can follow. Uh, follow very much a specific scientific methodology that you can develop and test, validate, and get scientific approval. And, but you're, if you're thinking about using digital health technology for clinical outcome assessment, so you heard about TransAlerate doing the novel digital endpoint effort, then you have a COA development pathway that you follow. So it's uh, about really looking at things, uh, where you position it, and how you develop a um, credible evidence validation package to get regulatory uh, acceptance. So that's kind of where we position it. Nice. And I think we've heard a lot this morning about the patients and when they come in. Um, what, what's your thought in general about how do you make those things more meaningful for, for patients? Are they? <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know, when we had our uh, preparation call, I told Tony that I um, actually have very, um, uh, I, I don't want to say a contro uh, controversial feeling about this uh, topic, because I think a lot of time I hear people keep saying uh, major things meaningful to the patient. Um, and I sometimes feel like when we keep talking about things like without substance or details, that it make it become meaningfulness, uh, meaningless, sorry. Um, to, to actually so-called measuring things more meaningful to the patient. Um, because I think when you survey patient, you talk to patient, um, a disease is not a state that people wanted to live with, right? So 
get rid of the disease still should be um, kind of the core um, focus of our pharmaceutical develop development. So focus on the disease, understand the disease, and help patients to get rid of the disease and really allow them to live in the disease-free state should still be a top goal um, when we talk about patient centricity. And so then thinking about like, well, how do we measure things uh, when people are actually living in a chronic disease condition because we couldn't get rid of that, those disease? Then uh, understand what the key disease burden to them. I think you heard earlier from uh, the DIMES initiative about nocturnal scratch. Right, a topic derm uh, patient suffers severe itch, the sensation of itch, and then that causes them to scratch all night long, could not get good night's sleep. So patient then would tell you they're fatigued. So those are disease burdens. So when we understand those, then you start thinking about, well, how do you measure things more meaningful to them? How do you position all the evidence tools that you can actually um, leverage to develop the drug Think about using EPRO. Um, EPRO is a patient-reported outcome, but you know, collecting things from patient doesn't just mean it's patient-centric, because you are actually leveraging patients to report their outcome. But is that uh, majority of the EPRO, I believe they are developed based on the patient-focused drug development program. So they are, you know, fun fundamentally should be patient-centric. But we still have to understand, well, this, these are um, tools to capture the concept of interest, but then how do you go further, right? So patients say, I scratch all night long. So when you have the concept, the next step is to think about, well, is there any other tools can help you detect the frequency, the duration, the intensity of that concept? So this is where actually DHT can come into play and allow you to really capture in depth the meaningfulness to the patient and help them to um, really uh, reflect that symptom, whether improved by the intervention that you're actually administer in their body um, or you know, any kind of other treatment uh, regimen you're providing. So I think it's really important for us to really position uh, the patient's centricity in a more meaningful way. Um, not just you know talk about patient, you know, <laughs> meaningfulness to, to patient. And I, I also wanted to say, um, from oncology perspective, um, a lot of time, the, you know, the biomarker research identify the right uh, patient for the right trial still should be the core of our research. Um, we should not be, you know, let, let just thinking about using technology um, because that potentially can bur overburden patient, actually. So we have to really think about, like, if you are the patient, then um, what, sort of a, what sort of a clinical trial environment that you want it to be in? Yeah, a lot of really good points. I mean, uh, I'm hearing also that why versus the what. Mm -hmm. um, but Dan said something uh, this morning that I thought was really perceptive. Well, a few things. Um, but one of them was around what we're trying to do with clinical trials being to measure things. Um, so the example that he just brought up, um, in a way, you can think of as a better way to measure how patients actually feel in a way that potentially puts less burden on them. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I worry about a lot is that complexity. So how do we make sure that we deal with accurate data, accurate measurements, while not putting a lot of undue burden and complexity to, to the patient? So how do we measure better without reducing access? I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. 
Thank you. So um, the way um, I kind of think about this is that you, you have to be intentional. So um, like I said, put yourself in the patient's shoes. Um, and so when we are actually um, developing a novel endpoint or um, you know, considering using DHT as the right tool to generate the evidence, um, often you know, we start with the concept of interest, the concept uh, that we wanted to measure, then we go through that to define the criteria, how we're gonna select the DHT that will match um, that criteria. So when you do the DHT uh, tool selection, I think in the new draft guidance, it talk a lot about like, you know. I was just gonna ask about that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have to also uh, consider uh, the, the patient burden side, right? Uh, the draft guidance even talk about like, well, are you gonna use patients on data plan to actually collect the data? Uh, is there any kind of risk that you should disclose on that technology? So I think uh, when you define your search criteria uh, for your DHT, those should be part of your assessment category. And once you identify maybe a few that you are going to move forward for testing, draft guidance also talk about you should actually implement uh, usability testing. So uh, the way that our team does it, and we are actually just recently set up a digital science lab, is to actually specifically allow our, our engineers and scientists able to conduct those testing and really understand about the, the burden of managing these technology at home. Um, and then we will bridge over to like phase one unit, allow us to actually also test it potentially on patient population as well. So I think it's important uh, for us to really be intentional and de uh, develop these processes to minimize that potential burden. And then if you, once you kind of conduct it in the patient population trial, document the learning so you don't repeat those kind of um, uh, challenge and then come to the forum like this and share your learning so people don't repeat making the same mistakes. I think if we can all do that, um, um, our patient will probably really appreciate our effort. Yeah. No, thanks. You mentioned the FDA draft guidance. I mean, there is uh, quite a bit of effort uh, that we've seen recently from the regulators. Um, maybe we can see a show of hands. Uh, if anybody here has absolutely no questions around the regulatory state of being, um, so assuming, like I can't see people over there in the back, but I assume uh, there's nobody with no questions. So. Any tips and advice how to best navigate the, the regulatory landscape, not just in the US, but globally as well? Mm. Yeah, it's an excellent question, because I think, um, especially if you're doing um, novel digital endpoint development or digital market development, um, early alignment with the regulatory agency is really critical. So I think a US uh, agency, they have really uh, defined three nice pathways you can engage them. And they keep saying that come engage early. So like CPM meeting, uh, I think I heard multiple talks talk about it. Um, so before you actually put the drug into the, the uh, clinical trials, CPM meeting is one way that you can engage early, talk about the concept you potentially wanted to measure. So after your IND submission, um, you could uh, potentially leverage those kind of channels. So that's one. And secondly, I think uh, a lot of the pharma company sponsors are part of the pharma, bio, a lot of these advocacy group. So you have another channel that to your advantage to actually engage the agency to consult. Um, and a lot of these opportunities allow you to bring use case forward. 
although both CPAN and these type of meetings are non-binding, you can actually get some early feedback from uh, some of the concept or some of the challenges you encounter. And I would say the most useful um, program uh, that we have experienced is actually leverage your type C meeting. So um, like, you know, phase 2A stage, if you are actually going to test your technology or endpoint um, for exploratory endpoint to uh, gather, gather some results, um, I think through your um, briefing book, along with your protocol, you can probably get, uh, get some useful written feedback back. So that would be a great touch point that's really specific to your uh, drug development program. And I highly recommend like at the end of phase two, once you get the result back, analyze them, then um, request the actual meeting for uh, in-depth discussion. I think those are uh, another way that you can actually um, help build up a, the stronger case um, to bring your endpoint forward. And I think you know the regulatory guidance uh, that got released in December, that was a kind of a Christmas uh, gift for uh, a lot of us, and we've been waiting for that uh, guidance. And it was really, really interesting to see the agency now um, have really um, much, provide much better clarity on like, how you can implement THT in the clinical trials. They give you numerous examples in the, in the draft guidance. Um, but one thing I do wanted to highlight, and I, I asked uh, Tony if we can actually discuss this, is that um, we know the PI um, is responsible for the conduct of a clinical trial, particularly monitoring safety, patient safety. And um, the DHT presents as a unique kind of position because um, none other data is a continuous uh, producing yes. the data. DHT is. So that creates a big data um, sort of storage burden on the site uniquely to DHT. And secondly, DHT, majority of them are not validated. Um, I, I should say endpoint are not validated. So some of the algorithms may be that multiple uh, uh, vendor had uh, developed and validated some algorithm, but a lot of them are not. So at this early stage, um, when the agency in the draft guidance is to say, hey, we need to make the PI accessible to all data because they're responsible for safety. I think we need to actually clarify well, what type of data we can actually ready to share, and are we going to uh, ask the PI to take action upon receiving, reviewing this data? Um, probably is a bit premature. So I would say that you know, in the validated situation, phase three, you're using as a primary or secondary endpoint. Those you've probably already gone through a lot of discussion with agency. The tool is validated at that stage. You should share the process data, but in the earlier stage when you're still just collecting raw data and you're gonna do a lot of process in the back end in your data warehouse, those data, you might create discrepancy if you use a vendor algorithm versus your own later algorithm. So I think that is an uh, area that we should actually have a, a more in-depth discussion with the agency to uh, figure out how we, um, help the investigator and the site to organize these data as a source data um, and then provide uh, access to investigator and inspectors uh, for regulatory compliance purpose. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point. I mean, I've argued for some time that um, one of the hopeful aspects of this whole remote 
world and digital world, you can potentially get much better safety for the patient, but that comes with some additional burden, potentially in the PI, potentially some additional liability and risk. Um, not sure this is quite solved yet. Um, if anybody has ideas, we'd love to hear them. Um, but say if you have a continuous ECG monitoring system like we just um, saw an hour and a bit ago, how, what kind of responsibility do you have as the PI um, potentially finding rare events and dealing with the false positives and false negatives? Um, certainly conversations I've had with uh, various uh, folks in legal, um, among others, right? So. <laughs> Ideas are, are highly welcome. Um, I know we only have uh, three minutes or so left. I wanted to make sure that we have some time for questions as well. But, you know, one of the really awesome things about the farm is that you have uh, sponsors of pharma like the two of us. Um, we have also vendors uh, in tech and devices. And, you know, the question begs itself, um, well, who do we expect to develop those tools and to what extent and to what level? Um, thoughts? So who does it? Do we have to? Do, do we have to ask, uh, you know, I'm not going to call out names, but you know who you are, uh, you know, to, to run the clinical trials for us and develop actual validated uh, primary endpoints? Who does it? Hmm. Well, so I don't have an answer. <laughs> I, my, my prediction, and you know, uh, given that this is not recorded as far as I know, um, my prediction is that as soon as we start having things that are accepted by payers, uh, we'll start seeing a lot more movement in this direction. Um, so things that connect our clinical trials to the real world, to the true real world, and uh, you know, value-based outcomes and measures. Uh, but that's just my prediction. What do you think? Hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough question because I, um, in my own opinion, I feel like um, it depends on different business model. Um, if you are profit, profiting from certain type of technology, that's your business model, then I think that entity probably should bear the burden of proof um, you know, because I, I think the regulators wanted to see the evidence package um, if you are using that to uh, provide medical guidance and things like that. And but for us, um, pharma industry using these as a drug development tool, um, I think that might be a more shared type of a model. So you know, the device company can bring in uh, semi-validated in the. Uh, healthy volunteer setting, but then when it's going to transition into the patient population, depends on you know where and which drug development program you have. Then um, it, it, you know the sponsor might want it to actually further validate it in the proper population. So that's a sh more the share model. Yeah. 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 So we have one minute left. So let's see if anybody has a burning question. If not, I have one more question for Michelle, um, and I'm sure you can find both of us afterwards. So, not seeing anybody with a burning question. Uh, any, any last thoughts, Michelle, about just the practical implementation and logistics? How does one go about implementing one of those new tools? Yeah. Who do you convince? <laughs> um, I, 
I think you need a leadership uh, buy-in for sure from top down. Mm. And, um, and I would say that you know, to do this successfully, it's a team sports. So besides your leadership um, get behind you, you need to also work cl collaboratively across your, not just your operation team, your regulatory colleagues, uh, your legal, your QA, everyone need to be on board. So make friends within your company, make friends in the, you know, with vendors and, and also leverage all the consortia. I think Dime's here and there are quite a few other consortia. I think a lot of them are involved as well. So I think we are done piloting, right? So let's make this as a series of business and treat it as a science, scientific discipline and then, um, you know, if we build credible evidence, I think regulatory uh, is ready to review. Um, so I, I'm very optimistic and hopeful. And I know, you know, we're, we're hanging this uh, in this field for 10 years. Uh, we're finally seeing the momentum uh, picking up. So I think, yeah, you know, let's get it through the last mile. <laughs> yeah. All right. This is this is a really good way to end this on the glass three quarters full, I guess. <laughs> Let's thank Michelle. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. For more information about these conferences, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit dfarmconference.com, and that's dphamconference.com. Thank you, and we hope you enjoyed the podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.